Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hello and yali with everyone, it's your host, Sony Kasim. Before we begin today's episode, there's a major milestone I'd like to mention. The Smiley Connection podcast officially hit its one-year anniversary in September. To celebrate, it would mean the world to the podcast team if you could take out less than two minutes of your day to give us a five-star rating and leave a review on whatever app you get your podcast. So go do that now and then come back and listen to the rest of this episode. Today, you'll hear from Jasmine Jiwa. She's an international journalist and documentary filmmaker who has reported from all over the world, particularly focusing on war-torn countries in the Middle East and Africa. After over a decade of experience in both print and broadcast journalism, Jasmine founded Stories of Survival. as an independent online project that aims to connect survivors worldwide and gives a voice to their stories and experiences. First, we'll hear more on Jasmine's most recent work a 2,000-word story she wrote earlier this year about a former commander of the Lord's Resistance Army for the New Humanitarian, a news publication for the United Nations. Then we'll take you on a journey through Jasmine's career, including how she founded Stories of Survival and how she hopes to monetize it one day. We'll also examine the life and career choices Jasmine's made in her career and how you can apply overarching themes in your life. For starters, I'll leave you with this. People often say you have to climb that corporate ladder Essentially, you start at the bottom of a company at an entry-level job and through the years, climb up to higher positions. And while that's one way to make career decisions and experience professional growth, it's not the only way. I once had a mentor who said that sometimes your career is like a jungle gym. Remember those from your childhood playgrounds? It's essentially a dome-shaped structure made of connected bars that you climb. Sometimes you move up and sometimes you move sideways and then sometimes you have to take a step back only to move up again in a different direction. That's how life and your career can be, which was also the case for Jasmine. But eventually, at some point in time, we all end up doing what it is that we're meant to do. And that chapter for everyone comes at different times in their lives. For some, it's faster, and for others, it's slower. But that's the beauty of life. Anyway, let's dive in. I hope you enjoy. I was doing research around a former commander of the Lord's Resistance Army that essentially propagated a conflict in northern Uganda for for decades um, until I think around the mid-2000s when there was a peace agreement signed. But the Lord's Resistance Army is still active in other parts of East Africa, Um, South Sudan, DRC, but not currently in Uganda. And so this article was looking at, has reconciliation happened? Is there peace in the region? How much have the survivors of this conflict healed? And in particular, it looked at the so-called wives of this commander who had abducted seven women when they were girls to be his like war wives and essentially have his children and function as a forced wife, having all the various duties that came with that. So the 
main hook of this article that I wrote, which got published in the New Humanitarian, which is a non-profit newsroom started by the UN, was that this former commander was being sentenced while I was in northern Uganda at the International Criminal Court. So I talked to four of the seven women who still call themselves his wives to kind of see what's your reaction to the sentencing and how many years do you think he needs to be behind bars for? What about his children who you're now raising as single mothers? And what about the trauma that you've been through? So that was a big part of the research I was doing in the region. And then I wrote to the new humanitarian in a journalistic capacity to say, I have access to this story. I think it's really important. Are you able to publish it? And they commissioned me to write 2000 words and publish some photos, but they wanted to widen it out from just this one situation of these seven women to reconciliation as a whole and looking at the region. And there's a lot of stigma still against victims of the Lord's Resistance Army who essentially most of them were abducted as child soldiers. And when they go back into the communities, people see them as perpetrators of war, whereas they had no choice but to join. And in fact, the person who was sentenced was also a child soldier and he was abducted by the army aged nine and he rose through the ranks over a couple of decades and became one of the leaders of the group. He was convicted of more than around 25 counts of various different war crimes. Jasmine's path to becoming a journalist wasn't easy. She graduated with a degree in psychology and artificial intelligence back in 2001 from the University of Birmingham. And a week after graduating, she realized that her heart was in journalism. And I think all of the feelings around watching anchors on television as a teenager and wondering what my life would be like if I had that job, all of those feelings kind of came rushing back. And this was straight out of university. This job in telecommunications was my first job and I didn't take it. I had to turn around to my parents and say, you know what, I actually want to be a journalist. And their reaction was kind of like, what, how are you going to do that? And I felt completely alone at that time where I was really being questioned around how I'm going to be a journalist with an educational background that didn't really match that. So that was really the start of my journey. I said to my parents, you know what, just give me a year. And at the end of that year, I am going to be a journalist and I decided that I was just going to go for it and it really was a result of feeling backed into a corner where the whole trajectory of my life was going to change if I didn't just bite the bullet and make the decision and decide to take steps towards it. So that was my entry point into the industry and since then it's kind of been an adventure of ups and downs but knowing that I'm on a path that feels true for me. Yeah, that's very important. I think a lot of young students, especially, are unsure of what they want to do with their lives. And I think that really resonates with people. So was it hard for you to go from having a degree in something that wasn't related to journalism and then pivoting to writing stories? I do think that it's more about contacts than anything else because journalism is what's learned on the job. 
but I think having the grounding of a course where you can stay in touch with other people that studied with you, where you might get recommendations from your professors is probably something that is so valuable to launch and continue your career through different milestones. There's certain industries that are open to the fact that you may have a general degree and they're willing to train you once you get there. And that really is the case for journalism, that you can get a job in journalism without having a degree in journalism. It might be helpful to have a degree in African studies or in politics if that's the area that you want to cover stories within. I think it was not really very relevant that I didn't have an undergrad in journalism. It was more about me as a person, how I was able to sell myself, and also just what you do, stories that you might tell yourself without working for anyone, but just independently going out in the field and getting stories. Those are the things that really demonstrate the kind of grit that you have to to do the work and the kind of work that you're going to turn around once you're working for that company. It's great advice. So I know you said it was a little bit difficult for you after graduating university and trying to prove to your parents that, hey, I can do this. When you finally were able to get that first job in journalism, how did that make your parents feel? Proud, especially my dad, who I think wasn't my biggest supporter when I kind of started out. My mom was a little bit more supportive. But when I started to make strides in the direction of my goal, it was really him who was, I think, the most proud to kind of watch me on TV presenting my first documentary, which was in the West Bank in Palestine. And when he watched that on television, he was really proud. What were some of your most favorite projects during your journalism career so far? All the work I did in Africa was my favorite part of my career. This was from 2013 to 2016, I think. I moved there after I got a job for a pan-African production company that was making both news for Reuters and also documentaries for international TV networks. For one of the documentaries I produced, I interviewed the former president of Liberia about how she became the first female head of state of an African country. Another documentary highlighted how a 14-year-old schoolboy had convinced warlords to disarm 20,000 child soldiers. I met genocide survivors in Rwanda, and in that film, we analysed how they and the country had recovered 20 years on from the tragedy. In Mali, I met activists who were literally putting down their guns and picking up musical instruments instead to get their political viewpoints across. I was given the chance to witness and make films about these amazing events and human experiences, and so much more. I'd wanted to work in Africa for a while, with my parents being from Uganda and just always feeling that connection through their words, through the food, through their lived experiences and conversations around the dinner table where they'd take me back to their growing up in a place that somehow seemed mystical to me. And arriving there confirmed all of my 
expectations from the chaos of riding on the back of a Boda Boda motorcycle <laughs> to get to work, to those gritty stories, being on the ground, working with local people to really get to the heart of an issue and really discover the lives of some of the poorest people on the planet and what their struggles are and what they're kind of going through and what they need and what the world can really provide for them politically on a large scale, what needs to be done to really look after the vulnerable in our societies. It was an amazing learning curve. And I think it was just something that really brought my passion to life, being in a place where I could learn an aspect of the trade, documentary filmmaking, where I could travel to different countries in the continent. I did two trips to Liberia. I went to Mali, Burkina Faso, Egypt, Rwanda, wow. Tanzania. And it was kind of on a six-week timeline, so I'd be away for three weeks and the rest of the time I'd be based in the office researching and editing. Where was the office? In Nairobi. So was it hard for you when you first started leaving the UK and traveling and venturing off on your own into the world? Or was it something like you were just really ready to fly the nest and go explore places you've never been to and talk to all the people that you've never spoken to and learn about all these different issues? I was definitely ready for it. I think that Throughout the whole of my 20s, I was print reporter and news editor for local newspapers in and around Surrey, where I grew up in the southern region of London. And many journalists travel widely in their 20s. And in fact, sometimes you go through your 20s understanding or believing that after you turn 30, you're not going to have as many jobs open to you, which actually is a total myth that I realised <laughs> after I turned 30 because that was a turning point for me. That's when I started travelling. That's when I realised that I need to do this now. And I think this is something that the diversity within our community really helps us with. The pluralism that we grow up with, the migration history that we have within our families, exposes us to lots of different cultures, different countries, and perspectives. After graduating college, Jasmine spent the next year filled with internships and a postgraduate certificate. I worked in India for three months for a newspaper called The Hindu. I did my postgraduate professional qualification for the National Council for the Training of Journalists in the UK. And then I started working for a regional newspaper called the Bromley News. And it was a very small team. And I was essentially doing almost every single job in the newsroom apart from the editing. And I went on from there to work at the Surrey Herald and then the Surrey Mirror in both reporting roles and news editing roles where I was leading a team of reporters and determining what our news agenda was going to be for the community on any given week. Mm -hmm. Jasmine spent five years in print journalism as a reporter and news editor before deciding to switch up her career path in the media industry. This was around her 30th birthday. I think what was really important to me was just that I wanted to tell stories on an international scale that were meaningful. And 
it didn't matter to me that much whether those were in broadcast or print journalism, but I wanted to reach the most people. And at that time, the newspaper industry was shrinking and the broadcast industry was powerful. And that seemed to be the route to go down to reach the most people and to get involved in really meaningful journalism globally. Jasmine got an internship at Lynx Productions, which is owned and managed by Faridun Hamani, a prominent Ismaili filmmaker and journalist. The internship led Jasmine to become a researcher, allowing her to work on a six-part documentary about human trafficking for BBC World News. Would this be like an example of how the Ismaili community helped you in your career? 100%. Because I was at that transition in my career where mentorship is invaluable. I, by the way, had already thrown in my job as a news editor managing a newsroom and a team of reporters because I was so committed to the next step, whatever that would involve. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't learning anything else. And I knew that I was at a point to the disappointment of my parents where I was really willing to just throw myself into the deep end and launch that next part of my journey. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked very hard and I believe that that's why he kind of saw that it was mutually beneficial for me to take on this role for a BBC World documentary where I had previously not had experience in broadcast journalism. But the fact that he gave me that opportunity was because of the connection that we had through our community and because he gave me the chance to do an internship and I proved myself in that scenario. Were there any other moments in your life where the smiley community was something that you've leveraged in your career? I think looking back, I would like to leverage it more. You know, I think that when we're at university or certainly when I was at university, networking isn't emphasized very much, especially in my experiences in the UK. That's something that's not really talked about. But the ways that it was helpful were through the kinds of experiences that you can get. I wrote for the Ismaili UK magazine. I was one of the reporters during the Golden Jubilee Games in Nairobi. And I did these various different projects and of course the opportunities for public speaking and socially what you learn being within our community, interacting with different age groups, project managing, So all of that has been really useful. But I think especially in journalism now, there's a real opportunity to network with other Ismailis, learn from their experiences, build a support network for the steps that you take forward because it's highly competitive. And it's tough to kind of put yourself out there in storytelling, which at times can be very personal and challenging because there's a vulnerability that comes with that. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the skills that you've learned or the skills that you didn't think you would learn while being a journalist, especially going from print to broadcast and making documentaries, were there different skill sets between the two different subsections of the industry? That is a really great question because, yes, it's almost like two different industries. 
and people in each one will approach it in a fairly exclusive way. So it really didn't feel like I was sidestepping from one role to another. What it felt like was that I was training up for a very different industry, which of course is rooted in storytelling. And I had certain skills that I could transfer, like being able to get access to certain people to interview them, getting people interested in the story that I was telling and the project that I was doing so that they would make themselves available for a filming or for an interview. But initially, I really had no concept of the type of visual material that is required to tell a story through film. And I was just thinking about my new sense in terms of what makes this story compelling, who's the audience, how am I going to make this content interesting for them to consume. But I wasn't thinking about the pictures. And that's vitally important to documentary making and broadcast journalism, of course, because without the shots, without the really exciting footage, there's no story, there's no film. After Lynx Productions, Jasmine left to work on an eight-part documentary series on the conflict between Israel and Palestine for Press TV, an Iranian television channel. I really kind of cut my teeth as a producer and a presenter there, where I was reporting in a fairly hostile environment in Israel and Palestine. And being in that conflict zone taught me a lot about telling stories quickly and with a sense of urgency. At protests where there might be gunfire or tear gas, most people were trying to get out of the area, but you're there trying to kind of really convey what's happening here. And so you're making sure you capture that before you join the others and leave the scene. Jasmine then started to make documentaries in Africa for press TV. She soon realized that she wanted to find a long-term opportunity in East Africa, where her ancestors are from. She eventually landed an opportunity with Africa 24 Media and spent three years in Nairobi, Kenya. Now, a lot happens at this point in her journey. I was working producing documentaries based in Nairobi for two years. And when we'd go into the field in these different places to report on various communities, whether it was some areas or high-profile people in politics, there was always many stories that remained untold. And there was many people in the communities who were waiting for their voices to be broadcast and published. But that never happened because they would end up on what we call in old-school television terminology on the cutting room floor, like you would cut pieces of interviews and you'd cut people out because you only have a certain number of minutes to broadcast for. So their stories were discarded and they'd never get to have them seen and heard the way that the journalist and me in this case would see and hear them. So it was important for me to create some kind of platform where these stories that I was so moved by when I heard them and these real like passion driven, the vulnerability that comes with people opening their soul to talk to a journalist and just because it's important to them 
that those stories make it onto a platform or a page somewhere. So I started in Kenya just talking to people and asking people to introduce me to their neighbors and asking them about their lives. What really interested me was how they survive. And just I think our survival is linked to who we are as people, what makes us tick, what makes us function. To me at that time, a lot of it was around the question of what gets you through it? You know, what is it that enables you to be so resilient? And I think I had so much pride in and respect for especially the women who seemed to be able to get through so much in difficult circumstances. And it has different layers to it because a couple of engineers became interested in the project. They developed a platform. We started looking for funding. But actually, and I don't know how much of this you want to go into, but that didn't really go forward in the way that I'd hoped. And it was really through a lack of funding. And I realized that I wasn't really the business woman who was going to drive this forward. I was much more about the content. So I kept it alive as a content generator and a place for people on social media and on an independent website to get exposed to these stories. But I really see the solidarity aspect of it. I think the other piece of it is that I've worked in lots of different countries, about 15 or so countries. And in each case, I've talked to people on a very personal level about the things that they are trying to change in the world and the reasons why they want to do that. And I saw that there's similarities between people from different places. And it was almost like I was just talking to the same people in different countries. And I just realized that if they could come together and normally they couldn't because they were living in very isolated situations. And if they could come together with some kind of solidarity, that they would really be a force to take on the status quo. So there's some part of this project that is around telling snippets of people's personal stories and enabling them to get in contact with each other because the media also tends to keep people apart. You can contact the journalist, but you don't know how to contact the person in the story, although you might have more questions for them. Living in the time that we do, it's about our independent voices. It's about the questions that we want to ask. And that's what social media gives us. And that's really, I think, what young people are kind of embracing, that we're not dependent on a journalist to ask questions anymore. We are our own investigators. That's how Jasmine's personal project, Stories of Survival, was born. So I started interviewing women, posting their stories on social media, and the project kind of accelerated to the point where it had 100,000 followers within about six months. So I looked at how I could grow and expand that and decided to take it global by telling stories in different places and look at how to make connections between survivors living in different countries so there was solidarity within groups of survivors living in different countries who normally would be isolated from each other. So I embarked upon that while exploring some other freelance projects at the same time. Around this time, Jasmine also began a soul-searching journey. 
She'd already spent 10 years in the journalism industry by this point and realized she wanted to take some time off to figure out where her career was going and what the next phase would look like. I was always somebody during my career that I knew when I'd got to a point where my growth had plateaued. And at that point, I wanted to invest all of my energies rather than into a nine to five situation where that wasn't really kind of feeding me anymore, that I wasn't passionate about anymore. I preferred to put all of my energies into exploring my next step and kind of have faith that I would land on my feet because that's what felt right at that time. Another big event happened for Jasmine during her second and third year in Kenya. She met her husband, Al Ismaili, while he was working on his tech startup, Bamba Group. He now works at Facebook. We got married on the beach in Diani in Mombasa, and we went back for about six weeks. So much longer than you'd kind of expect from a regular destination wedding, but because it... (laughs) It still felt like a partial home for both of us so we could kind of stay with friends and make the most of being back there while planning the wedding and going through that whole, the rigor of that whole kind of (laughs) wedding process and everything that it involves. And also have some time afterwards to kind of go on a mini moon in Zambia and Zimbabwe and spend some time in Nairobi before our family kind of left to go back home. Jasmine ended up in San Francisco after she began thinking more deeply about stories of survival. She wanted to take it international, so Jasmine found two software developers in California to help her do that. They had studied engineering at the University of Waterloo in Canada with her husband, Al. She approached one of them because she knew he was a writer. But instead of just writing for stories of survival, he spoke with a colleague and they both joined as product developers. And it seemed like a kind of natural next step to be here in the environment where, you know, tech is really kind of at the forefront of the global marketplace Mm -hmm. and look at how to take that forward. So by that time we were married, we were living in the UK and he also got a job in the San Francisco Bay Area. So that kind of opened the door for both of us to move and really kind of start our new life together as a married couple in a new place in the US where neither of us had lived by that point Mm -hmm. and just explore this kind of fresh environment through fresh eyes and begin to kind of build our marriage in a new place that neither of us was connected to, but with that kind of connection with each other. Despite having access to Silicon Valley, it was hard for Jasmine and her team to monetize stories of survival. Very difficult to come up with a kind of business strategy that aligned with the very personal motivations behind the project that was really kind of rooted in connecting survivors from different places for social impact, for marginalized voices to be heard, for healing to occur within communities that had been terrorized and traumatized often over years. And with the value of pluralism at its heart, where commonality could be found between people from very different backgrounds, cultures, contexts, and economic backgrounds. So monetizing that without making huge compromises proved difficult. And although we had a strong team of engineers and journalists 
because the project attracted journalists living in different places that would report on stories on the ground in their various locations and send content to the project for publication online. Although it had a strong base in those aspects, it really required a business mind that could be a little bit more cutthroat with establishing the project and creating a business strategy that would enable it to make money, which of course is necessary for sustainability. I quickly realized that that business mind was not me and that I was much more devoted to the storytelling aspect of it. But if there was a business partnership, if anybody is up for that, is something that I'd love to take forward because sustainability does come from that financial input. So out of all the things that you've done in your career, what were some of the hardest stories that you've covered? Mm. I think some of the hardest stories were in environments of brutally extreme poverty and some of the suffering that you're exposed to is difficult. Knowing that what you're doing might not really make a change, most likely won't make a change to that individual situation. And sometimes it can feel transactional from that person's perspective because they may be expecting a monetary payoff for sharing their story with you. And just really acknowledging that in some way you've become part of this kind of capitalistic machine where are you taking advantage of this person by hearing what they have to say and by documenting their life when that's the furthest thing from my heart. I think it's witnessing suffering and acknowledging that what you can do about it feels limited in terms of your work in the media at that time. Mm -hmm. Is it hard to have people open up to you? When it comes to people who are not necessarily celebrated or recognized on an international scale, they really want to speak and they really want to get their voice out there. And often they will open up for that very reason, that in some way you hold the power to a potential change in their life through the global access that you have to publicity around their situation. It's a very different storytelling stories in the US where I worked recently covering the US election for the Italian Broadcasting Corporation. And although that was with a perspective on minority issues, the Black Lives Matter campaign and how COVID had affected minority communities, the market, so to speak, is saturated in the sense that people have many platforms on which they can speak, including their own platforms on social media. So it was much more difficult to get people on board with why they should talk to me as a journalist, as opposed to using all the other platforms at their disposal. But in places like Palestine, in some of the poverty-stricken areas in Africa, in the countries where I've been, it really feels like a kind of privilege to people to be asked to share their story. And of course, it's a privilege for me then to have their trust and to utilize that correctly 
and to represent their story. I also think that sometimes the security that may be a part of your work for a larger corporate organization or for the UN, being in a UN car, for example, changes the attitudes of people towards you. And it could really overly sanitize the stories that they tell because of the way that they're going to see you. They will always see you as a foreigner. And I realized that quickly and it was disappointing to me because I wanted to relate to people on a human level. But you're seen as somebody who has wealth. You're seen as somebody who is foreign, has access to more opportunities than many of the people that you're telling stories about and trying to give a platform to. But I think that element of relatability where you don't have security with you, I think that that's helpful to relate to people and to enable them to open up to you. How does covering such heavy topics in these other parts of the world have an impact on you? It kind of inspires me in those difficult situations to see people's resilience, to see what they've been through, to see where they find their strength. And also, I just really want to add that I think some of the decisions that I've made during my career have been leaps of faith and have been challenging to the status quo, challenging to what my peers are doing, challenging to some of society's expectations. And I think many journalists find themselves in this situation where they're sometimes having to choose things that might appear reckless, that might appear different from the expectations of the people around them. And I think that it sometimes can be a conviction that's very deep inside you, that when you begin to peel away the kind of layers, that becomes very clear. And there's a lot of strength in that internal conviction that this is something that I know I need to do right now. And I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I know that it needs to be done and it needs to be me that's going to do it. And I'm taking steps forward in that direction, regardless of the challenges that come up. And I think that when there's that conviction, the difficult situations, and I feel like probably everyone can relate to this in some aspect of their life, that the most difficult of situations somehow you figure out how to overcome the challenges but you know that this is where you've got to be and there's a strength and an inspiration that comes with that that really gets you through and it enables you to make it to the other side any specific examples that where you went through these thoughts my grandparents for example didn't want me to relocate to kenya in their mind, they had been expelled, and not just in their mind, it, it's a fact that they were expelled from Uganda mm -hmm. for being from an Indian origin, along with many other South Asians. And going back seemed ridiculous. We have got our children grounded in a Western education. Why would you ever go back to East Africa where we struggled? to leave and to get out and where we were treated the way that we were. Of course, it was very difficult for me to explain to them that it was actually their experience that had inspired me to report in that region. And it was not something that 
I was really able to get across with clarity, I don't think, although maybe on some level they knew. But that was a time when I needed to really follow that inner voice and just trust. And I did, in that instance, secure a position that I knew I could walk into and begin reporting immediately. So I had that level of security. But I knew that I needed to move to Kenya. And in the end, meeting my life partner there, I think, is also some kind of indication that when you take those leaps of faith, the universe will kind of conspire to bring into your life other things that you may have been wishing for. When you're covering all these topics and you're traveling a lot, is there a mental health component to it at all? Companies probably should offer more in terms of mental health to journalists. And I don't know why it's hard for me to say that. Maybe it's because I've never had it or maybe it somehow goes against the grit that is required of you to be in these environments. And maybe that is a kind of an old fashioned way of functioning. But somehow there's this mentality that it comes with the territory. This is what you've got to do to do justice to the people out there that need a platform for their voices more than you do. And you suck it up and you do it because you're surrounded by people who have so much less than what you have. So you're not really thinking about the toll that it's taking on you as an individual or as a reporter. You're just thinking about the story, you're thinking about the deadline, you're thinking about being successful in your endeavor in that particular place to report on a story. And you're really just being exposed and having your eyes open to the amount of deprivation that exists in the world. So in terms of mental health, if companies could shed light on that and provide support, you know, maybe it's even more vital because that's not at the front of your mind when you're out in the field or for many journalists I've talked to, it's not at the front of my mind. Do you have any advice for people on how they can sort of find their passion? I think all of us know what it is that really speaks to us, what makes us feel alive. And this question is a good one to ask anybody who's wondering what they really want. If money was no object, if you had unlimited talent and potential, what would you spend your time doing? The answer to that question is really key. And then to take one small step every day towards that. And it might be that the answer to that question is something very random, like, I don't know, you want to spend your time surfing in Australia, for example, but <laughs> take one small step towards that. So maybe to watch documentaries about surfing, maybe to learn more about Australia, maybe to take a holiday out there, but to take one small step every day towards that vision and clarity will begin to present itself with every step and to take small action steps in that direction. Also, something that I found really, really useful 
once you begin to slowly, tentatively, hesitantly, or maybe even with full force, follow your calling, to try to discern who to share what information with in regards to your personal goals. Because mentors and supporters kind of will make time and space for us to nurture our vision. And there are also friends who we can confide in, who will champion us, who will help us to deal with our doubts, and who will really kind of encourage us in the direction that we're heading in. While there's other people that will mirror your doubts and your fears. So I think that that then begins to discourage you. It begins to put you back into that shell where you feel like you need to conform to what you've been brought up with or certain barriers that you think you might have. Um, so I think discerning who you're going to share your goals with, who you're going to talk through your fears with, and who's going to help you to be accountable to the fact that you are pursuing that true path, really choosing carefully those people has been really helpful at times for me to move forward. And it's something I'm doing much more now, being a naturally open person that would generally share with anybody that would make time <laughs> become very discerning. And it's amazing how helpful that's been in really building my vision and enabling me to take action towards it. For those who are interested in journalism career, what are some of the skills that they should make sure that they get in order to get those journalism jobs as the media landscape shifts? Yeah, there's definitely a conflict right now between the traditional forms of journalism and digital forms and social media. There's a lot of change that's happening. I think that there's a large part of the industry, though, that is still very traditional and requires just the skill set. It always seems to be an advantage to be more of a kind of one-person band where you can film, you can edit, and you can produce. And I think that's very useful for people to have that full repertoire of skills. Looking at your whole career so far, if you could go back in time and do anything differently, would you do something differently? And if so, what would it be? I think that I would have a more structured approach in the direction of my goals. Of course, in my case, there's been times when I haven't had the confidence to pursue what I really want. There's been other times when maybe if I'd had the right mentors around me, I would have been able to go further along a path once I did determine what I wanted. So I think that going for things with more confidence is something that I would have liked to have done differently. But things happen only kind of in the time and at the time that they do. So that learning curve is different for each person. So I think that acceptance is the only way to the next step. Essentially what I'm saying is that Acceptance of what you've done and that you did things at the right time for you is really key to clarity to move forward and having a clean slate and just looking to the future and looking at what you're going to accomplish next. You know, I really feel that in my soul because I'm at a point where it's funny because I'm close to hitting 30, but I'm not there yet. But 
talking about feeling like you're old, I mean, I know that being in my late 20s is not old, but in my mind lately, I'm just like, wow, my 20s are almost over. I'm going to enter my 30s in like a couple years. And what have I done with my life? And why am I still not doing what I want to do? And you saying that you kind of have to accept that the things that have happened to you have happened the way they need to happen and that the experiences that you've had in the order that you've had them, it just, it really hits me. <laughs> and I feel like I needed to hear that just on a personal level. I feel like so many people can relate to that, you know? Maybe that more kind of soul-searching approach to life, that approach where kind of you're looking for fulfillment and you're looking deeply within you, maybe it just becomes less linear that way. And thank you so much for such an amazing conversation. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Smiley Connection. If you'd like to connect with Jasmine, make sure to check the description in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please give us a review and a five-star rating on the Apple or Google podcast apps. It takes just less than five minutes to do that compared to the hours of work that goes into each podcast episode. So we'd be grateful for your time and support. And if you know of any amazing people with compelling stories, drop us a line at ipnpodcasts at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Cassilee. Green Merchant, our amazing head of relationship management, was extremely instrumental in helping to research and report for this episode. Marketing was carried out by Simon Juwani. Our cover art is designed by Shaquille Momin. Also, many thanks to Zoha Momin, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN, and Dolly Lakani, our speaker advisor for the Ismaili Connection. And lastly, I'd also like to thank the team behind SimonSays.ai, the software that helps the Smiley Connection get its transcripts. Music included in this episode are Cinematic Ambient Emotional by Good Bee Music, Rising Up by ER41, The Sound of Light by Tomami Kato, Melancholy Sad Piano Music by Julius H., My Life Main by Good Bee Music, Calm River Lo-Fi Background Music by Less FM, Cinematic Ambient Feeling Piano Music by Less FM, and finally, Trip to Home Relaxing Acoustic Guitar, also by Less FM. Thank you so much for listening.